Amen. Uh, today we're going to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to again look forward to His coming back. And we're going to do that by partaking of the Lord's table. This is uh, uh, interesting. Uh, I don't think any of us have ever done it like this before. But it, it's so wonderful because uh, there's no forms actually prescribed in Scripture to um, partake of the Lord's table. There are different ways that it can be done. And so we are um, doing something different now. To be able to do this uh, online is um, uh, indeed different, but it's something that uh, everybody can participate in and partake of. The um, What we're going to first do is open with a word of prayer. And then I'm going to remind us, because on your handout, you're going to have uh, the final week and consummation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to have the uh, sequence of events as they occurred throughout the final week. And we're going to remind ourselves of those, and we will close out this particular uh, message or class that, that you call it, we are going to close it out with partaking of the Lord's table. So that will be the last thing that we do. Uh, we're going to close out after that with an a cappella uh, hymn, Amazing Grace, and I want you to sing it loud enough I can hear it while, whenever, we are, whenever we are done. So, ha-ha. Anyway, let us start with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, once again, we are so blessed, we are so honored and privileged to be called your kids. Father, to be able to, to come together even electronically in this way, it's just a tribute to you. It's your grace that we can even do it. Father, we look forward to the time that we can assemble ourselves together in person, as you have called us to do. But, Father, we also thank you for this time that we are able to come together and to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and its impact on history. Father, I pray that we'll come to a greater appreciation of what He did in our place the week before the cross, on the cross, and after it. And we do ask this, that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we ask it. Amen. Well, we're going to look at the final week, and we're going to see some different things that are brought out here. Uh, the first few days of the week, the final week of the cross, are going to display different types of attitudes. First of all, he's anointed for burial. We see this in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper that's no longer a leper. We see Mary, Martha, Lazarus there. Mary anointed him with some uh, expensive perfume. The disciples, uh, led by Judas, were indignant. What are you doing wasting all this money on this perfume? And he said, uh, she has anointed me for my, for my burial. We see also that the notoriety that he had received earlier for the raising of Lazarus led to an official decision by the Jews to try and have him executed because many Jews were believing in him too and he didn't want that and they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. They wanted to put him back in the tomb by, by means of capital punishment. But some people did love him. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they indeed did love him and we see that picture early on in the week. 
we see Messiah entering Jerusalem. This Bethlehem or Bethany was uh, uh, about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. Messiah rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what we see here is that some people wanted to use him. Now, these things we, we see throughout all of history. Some people throughout all of history love him. Some people just want to use him. Jesus sent two disciples ahead to get a donkey. Prophecy was fulfilled when he came riding in on this donkey. The disciples didn't understand then, but they understood it later. People had spread their garments in the road. They put tree branches, olive branches to honor him. They were singing Psalm 118, specifically verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees wanted him to rebuke his disciples. But he said, even the stones cry out like Habakkuk 2.11 would say. He wept over Jerusalem as he drew nearer to it. And he quoted Isaiah 29.3 and it prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem. He went to the temple that day. He healed the blind and the lame. And he said, out of the mouth of infants, O Father, you have prepared praise for yourself. And that night he went back to Bethany. Now that day he entered Jerusalem. We saw it last week. was the fulfillment of the 69th week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. That very day. Now, next going back into Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree. And what we learn from this is that what we're going to see in conjunction with this is some people just honor the Lord with their, their lips. He departed from Bethany. He saw a lone fig tree all by itself. It wasn't in the vineyard. It was all by itself. It had no fruit on it. And he cursed it, even though it was not the season for figs. And this matter perplexed his disciples. He returned to the temple. And he cast out the money changers. Again, he had done it three years earlier. He said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. You made it a robber's den. He returned daily during this week. And the chief priests and the scribes intensified their efforts. He taught them about service and serving one another. He asked the Father to glorify Him, which the Father did by saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus told the multitude that if He was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all men to himself. He's the light of the world. He left the unbelieving multitude who loved the approval of men rather than of God. And on one of the returns, they saw the fig tree withered. And he taught them about the amount of a small amount of faith. Faith, the grain of a mustard seed. And he also taught them about forgiveness. So there was a wide range of viewpoints about people. Some loved him, some hated him, because they challenged his authority. They came to the temple again, and he was teaching. They asked him, where did this authority come from that you're teaching by? Because he was different. Most people quoted others. Jesus said, I say to you. So his whole presentation was a different matter. They asked him where his authority came from. So he says, uh, well, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They had no answer. 
because they knew the multitude regarded John as a prophet. So if he discredited John, they were uh, they were in trouble. And if he they discredited heaven, they were in trouble. So they didn't have an answer. And he said, I'm not going to answer your question if you don't have an answer for me. Now, some people hated him. The power base, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priesthood. They didn't want him anywhere around there. But indeed, he presented himself as the lamb unblemished. He is the rejected stone, which pointed out that most rejected him, especially that week of the cross. Notice how he came in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But before the week was over, that same group of people would be yelling, crucify him. He told about the parable of the two sons, one son being obedient. He taught the parable of the vine growers. And they sent servants uh, to his son even. but the, and He sent servants to tell him what was going to happen, even his son. But the vine growers uh, killed the son. And they knew, interestingly enough, the Pharisees and scribes knew who Jesus, Jesus was talking about. And they became even more angry. The Messiah will be the stone that the builders rejected. Now, he brought that out. Which is, interestingly enough, found also in Psalm 118. In verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the psalm they were singing on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem also contained the passage about the stone that the builders rejected. He taught the parable of the wedding feast, talking about the invitation to the people, how many were invited, many are called, but few are chosen. He taught them to render to God and to Caesar what is there. So he taught them about the discernment of the individual. Don't get drawn into a lot of these arguments that have uh, no regard. Render to God what is God and to Caesar what is Caesar's. He was asked a, a puzzle. They thought they got him about whose wife will she be? Because this man had died and his and, and or this woman had died and he remarried. Whose wife is she going to be? And what you see there is the subtlety of the serpent. The serpent trying to find some way to trip him up. Some way to try and get him to contradict Moses, to contradict the traditions of the elders, some way to try and trip him up. As notice, this is the most vulnerable time this week, the most vulnerable time Jesus had on the earth with the possible exception of the 40 days in the wilderness. Because here he knows where he is going. He is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows what his destiny is. He has told it to his disciples, but they have refused to believe it. And so the Pharisees are looking for a way to try and trip him up and find a way to bring legitimate charges against him. But they're not able to do it. It's also during this week that he's questioned by the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? What are the real issues of life? And he points it out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus to, to pull out those two greatest commandments. The Jews argued over the greatest commandments in the law of Moses for centuries. And they asked him, and he, without hesitation, 
These are the two greatest ones on these. Depend the whole law on the prophets. Jesus' relationship to David was also questioned. Because uh, who is the giver of life? Jesus asked him a question. From Psalm 110.1. How could Messiah be both David's Lord and be David's son? Another question the Jews discussed and argued about for a long time. The only answer is he was God and man at the same time. They didn't figure it out. But Jesus posed that question to them. Who really gives life? And that is the Lord himself. He also not only pointed out to the giver of life, the ultimate giver of life, but to those who take life. The takers of life, the blind guides. In Matthew 23, again, the week of the cross, he issues seven woes. Woes to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, why does he proclaim them seven woes? They shut off the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not a grace anymore, but it's of works. But they shut off the kingdom of heaven. They travel about, spreading their leaven. Not just in Jerusalem, but all over the world. All their evil concerning works and all of their um, traditions of the elders and the legalisms that they put together in volumes. They swear by the temple, and yet they compromise when money is an issue. They swear by the altar, and they lack any true virtue. They tithe. Dylan Minton Cumin. But they miss the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy. They clean the outside of the cup, don't clean the inside. They look good. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far away. They're nothing more, he says, than whitewashed tombs. They look good, but they're full of dead men's bones. They build memorials to prophets, and yet... They are just like the ones who killed the prophets. He called them out, and they are continuing to go after him. And in the middle of all this, when he talks to them about, really, the love of money, because it says that the Pharisees were lovers of money, there's a poor widow's gift along the way. Because there are those who... What are the issues of life? The greatest commandments. Who is the giver of life? Lord God Almighty. Who is the takers of life? Those that want to rule by simple power alone. And then you have those who love life. The widow's might. Most people gave out of their surplus, out of their excess. This woman gave all she had. She gave out of her love. And the Lord honored that. By talking about her, showing her as an object lesson that has endured for now almost two millennia. We find during this week, the Olivet Discourse comes about. We know that he cursed a fig tree en route to Jerusalem. And he said, there's, there's no fruit on it. Well, there wasn't any fruit on it. Wasn't the time of year for fruit. But the Olivet Discourse, he takes Peter, James, John, and Andrew with him. And he starts talking to them about promises. Because guess what? He's going to be gone. He's going to be leaving. He'd been telling them for two years now anyway 
that he's going to be delivered up. They are going to take his life. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. And they've been telling him that. And they kept saying, when are you bringing your kingdom? When are you bringing your kingdom? And he brings those four up the mountain in order to hear about coming events, prophecies. And an interesting thing, when God makes a prophecy, it's a promise. It's not like man makes a prophecy based on projections and best guesses and everything else they can come up with. Models, as we were talking about during the break. They put a model together to try and prophesy something, and they're not too good at it. Just statistically saying this might happen, but not allowing for divine hand anywhere. But he is giving prophecies. He is the prophet. So when he makes a statement, it's a promise. It moves out of the realm of simple prophecy into the promises of God. And he does it to tell Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and us, what, what to look for. He says there are going to be false messiahs rise up. There's going to be wars, famines, and earthquakes. And these are simply the beginning of birth pangs. What do we see going on around the world today? All those things. We see them increasing and intensifying. The analogy is to birth pangs. And that's a, that's a pretty clear analogy to most people on this planet. They know what happens. They know that there are certain things that come to fruition. And when they're ready to give birth, then certain things start happening to a woman's body getting ready for the child to exit. And so... What is these birth pangs that is going to bring forth this child, which is the millennial kingdom? Wars. More wars in the 20th century than all of history combined. And people say that's just because they recorded them. People always recorded wars. That's how they marked time. In the third year, a Shalmaneser, they went up against. They, they've always marked wars. And you can get a book from, I got it a long time ago from Military Book Club. I don't even know if it's still there. And uh, it was a long time ago. And doesn't have, needless to say, all the modern things in it. But it's got them all listed. And you can go back into ancient history. Everywhere it's recorded in the 20th century there were more. How about earthquakes? You say, well, we can just measure them better. They've been measuring earthquakes at least as far back as the 3rd century B.C. We know the Chinese were able to do that. And that's a quote from Time Life Books. People measure earthquakes. And we're talking about earthquakes that we would say are a 5 or above on the, on the scale. But these things are simply beginning. That's the beginning of birth pangs. But see, that's what happens. I don't think they're the false birth pangs, the Baxton-Hicks contractions or whatever those are called. These are the real deal because we see it going on all over the planet. Persecution and opportunity is also what he taught him about. During the middle of it, what do you prepare for? What do you look for? Famines, wars, earthquakes. Okay, What do you prepare for? Persecution and opportunity. They'll drag you in front of the courts. Most people's love will grow cold, is what it says. The gospel will go out to the whole world. What else? There are going to be days of vengeance. They're all getting set up. One of these days, Jesus has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Romans 12, 21 makes that statement. They will be in the tribulation days of vengeance. The abomination of desolation will be set up and it will be a time of tribulation unlike has ever been in the history of the world. He also tells Peter, Andrew, James, and John and us, don't forget, there's going to be false messiahs everywhere. Some people are going to claim they've got a formula to save the planet. A formula without Jesus is not a formula. It's just a speculation. False signs. There will be true signs in the tribulation and the sun, moon, and stars. Men are going to faint from fear from what's coming on the planet. And we have just seen in the last month or so how much fear can play a role in, um, in people's lives. And when they let fear take over, <coughs> uh, fear takes over, you lose your freedom for one thing. We are learning immediately after the tribulation, the Son of Man returns. He's going to gather forth all of His elect. So He says in this sermon on, on the, not Sermon on the Mount, but the Olivet Discourse, watch and be ready. Learn the parable of the fig tree when it begins to put on its leaves. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah enters the ark. So, how's it going to be? Could we have some rough times here? Rough times around the world before the rapture? Absolutely. But you know what? Compared to what it has been, it's still going to be one of the greatest times in history. One will be taken. One will be left. Be on the alert. Be awake. Be a sensible servant. He says some people, he's just not going to know. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's not going to know them. He tells the parable of the ten virgins about being sure to have oil in your lamps, which is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. He teaches the parable of the talents. It's a parable about faithfulness and the fact that we should be faithful to the Lord no matter what, even when we don't know when the Master is coming back. We should be ready for the Master's return. He tells about the separation of the sheep and the goats. It will happen at the second advent. The unbelievers will be taken out. The believers will be left to inherit the kingdom. And then we find that last week, the traitor, Judas, goes to bargain. Thirty pieces of silver. He sold out the Lord for thirty pieces of silver. And Satan enters into Judas. And then the Last Supper. The Last Supper is where we get the Lord's table from. They were following through with the set of the Passover meal. Did it in Jewish, typical Jewish tradition. And he extracts the bread and the cup. And he tells us to keep on doing this in remembrance of me. And so he gets all the disciples together for the final Passover. We remember that Peter and John were charged with setting it up. They didn't get, the, they didn't get it set up. And they did not provide anyone and did not volunteer themselves to wash everybody's feet, which was traditional. So Jesus got up and get it, did it. The maker of the universe. He told them at the table, somebody's going to betray me. Somebody's going to betray me. And then he, they, all of them denied it. 
Judas knew who it was. Jesus knew who it was. And he told him, go do what you got to do. Now, it's interesting that he said that, but he also said, woe to those. It had been better for that man had he not been born. So he knew what he was going to do. But he also warned him against it. He explained the elements about his body, the bread, his blood, the cup. And he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. In chapter 14 of John, he says, let not your heart be weary. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on to explain that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he tells them later in that chapter, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Now, what is his commandments? Love God, love others. That's first and foremost, because he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In the upper room discourse, he encourages them to be servants. He teaches the vine and the branches. He calls them friends. He says the world's hatred is going to be poured out upon you. And don't be surprised because they hated me first. He teaches them about the Holy Spirit that is upon them and will be in them. And how the Holy Spirit is going to lead them into all truth and show them things to come. And also bring to mind all that he has said after he has gone. He says, your sorrow will be turned to joy because I am getting ready to return to the Father and I have overcome the world. He tells them, you're going to deny me. And then he goes to make a passionate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where it says that he sweat blood. He exhorts them. The eleven now, because one's gone to betray him, to become servants. Didn't he just say the week before, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all? He goes through his trials, which basically is an object lesson to prepare for the unfairness of the world. Because how could you get things more unfair? He prays, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He's betrayed. They come to get him in, in the garden. He asks, why question me to his accusers? <laughs> he had told Peter earlier that he would deny him three times. And Peter vehemently argued with him. No, I'm not going to do that. But they led him off to trial, and Peter did. They asked him, are you the son of God? They were looking for anything to put him to death. Peter was accused of being one of his disciples, to which he, which he denied, it says, and cursed as well. The verdict was confirmed. They brought him before Pilate. Pilate really didn't want to listen to it. But he got himself into a box. The traitor, Judas, went out and hanged himself. 
It's interesting that he could have afforded himself the forgiveness that was being carried out by Christ on the cross, the payment for sins. The Roman judgments were there. Pilate, Herod, Pilate again. Sent him to Herod. Herod wanted answers. Lord wasn't going to answer. The sheep did not speak to justify himself. Pilate gave the multitudes an opportunity. Who do you want? Barabbas or him? He taught us there through this part. Prepare for the unfairness of the world, but you have to die to self. Die to yourself. What did they want? Crucify him. They call for the crucifixion of their Messiah. They were so caught up in the moment. They did not remember the prophecies of Daniel. That after the 69th week, Messiah shall be cut off. He'd be put to death. They didn't understand Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Many thought there'd be two, two messiahs. One maybe to pay for their sins and the other one to free them from the Romans. They had it all confused. They actually thought the animal sacrifices would atone for their sins. They led him to Golgotha. there they placed him on a cross. When he's hanging on the cross, people like you and I were going in front of him, mocking him. They were calling him everything in the book, saying, come down off that cross, then we'll believe. Physician, heal yourself. But instead... After taking care of his mother by assigning her care to the Apostle John. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They put him on a cross. The sky went dark. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer was for you and I. The answer was for you and I. The sky went dark for three hours. He cried that out. And then he said, It is finished. I am certain that sent shock waves throughout all the angelic worlds, throughout the gates of hell. It's finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. One word in the Greek, three words in the English. Perfect tense says it is over and done with forevermore. It's an accounting word. Paid in full. The sin, the penalty for sin, has been forever paid for. Hebrews 10 says, One sacrifice for sin for all time. And he has taken that big paid in full marker and stamped it paid in full. It says that we have had the certificate of debt, our certificate of debt, nailed with him to that cross. So our debts have been paid. And then he breathed his last. There were awesome wonders. 
in the sky, great earthquake, split the veil of the temple from top to the bottom, opened up the holy of holies to basically say that the way into heaven was now paid for and opened. There's the gate. Joseph of Arimathea, we remember, went and asked for his body, got his body from Pilate. We also remember that everybody knew he had died. The Roman soldiers, who had probably put thousands of people to death, declared him dead. The spear in his side, with the separation of the blood and the sera, showed that he had died. The Jews knew where he was because they wanted a guard put on the tomb. They put a seal on the tomb, which if anybody would have broken the seal, it had been subject to the death penalty. They, they, knew, they knew he had died. The Jews proclaimed him dead. The Gentiles proclaimed him dead. Pilate proclaimed him dead. And they knew where he was buried. And they took him there. The disciples declared him dead. His mom declared him dead. Everybody knew he was dead. And they took him to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And there they placed him. The tomb is sealed. Guards are put on it. And there it was until the third day. But then, on that third day, the stone was rolled away. Now, <clears throat> It's interesting the words used there because it indicates on a coolio is to roll, indicating as a round stone. On a coolio, ana means up, so it indicates to roll up. It's in all four gospels, different words. And then we have the word iro used in the Gospel of John, which indicated the stone, the big stone, was rolled uphill, and it looks like it was picked up and lifted up. Now, did the angel do that? Wouldn't have been hard for an angel to do. They're pretty strong. Did Jesus do that? Don't know. But what we do know is that stone was not where it should have been. It's not where it was left. What happened to the guards? They were scared to death. And <clears throat> they were bribed. Don't ever speak of it. Today, that's still what goes around was that the guards did not see anything. That the disciples came and stole away his body in the middle of the night. But you know what? The disciples the disciples were like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered all over the place. They were scared. They were in hiding. They were wondering what was going to happen to them. All you have to do is look at who they were and you know that it was... It was, they were scared for their own life. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They understood. He appeared behind locked doors. Once Thomas was not there, he didn't see him, and they, and he wasn't going to believe his buddies. He said, "I've got to see." But you know what? The Lord came back the next time Thomas was there. And the first thing Thomas said was, My Lord and my God, and he fell to his knees. Thomas, with all of his doubts, is one who can make the adjustments quickly. 
seeing and believing. And then the Lord disappeared. And there was a fishing trip. He said, wait here. He gave them instructions, but being typical disciples, acting like teenagers, they decided they'd do their own thing. Well, we might as well go back to see a Galilee, and we might as well fish. And so there they are out there not catching anything. Sounds like a lot of my fishing trips. They're not catching anything until this guy on the shore says, try the other side of the boat. And they did that. He did that once before. Before he called them, and they could not bring in all the fish that were there. This time they tried the other side of the boat and had a massive catch of fish that they managed to get to the shore. Peter, though, didn't wait. Typical of Peter. He jumped out of the boat and swam ashore. And there he was with the Lord. There he was with the Lord. His parting words were to restore Peter. He asked him three times if he loved him. And Peter responded. Peter was a broken man after his denials. And yet, he responded, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. And he said, Feed my little lambs, shepherd my sheep, and feed my sheep. He reinstated Peter and gave him an assignment, a mission to carry on. He gave the parting words to them after appearing to multiple people several people over the course of 40 days and then he ascended up to the Father in the first part of the book of Acts we find that he told them to begin in Jerusalem go to Judea, Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth to spread out and take this good news this gospel to the entire planet and we're not quite there yet that's what we are called to do The Lord's table is designed to remind us of what He did. We've just gone back through the last week in a very abbreviated time because as John closes out his gospel, he said, if I'd have wrote everything down, the world wouldn't contain the books. So we have very quickly abbreviated what all He did that last week. It was packed. But the key is that he showed up as the lamb. He was watched as the Passover lamb was watched. He was, he was found perfect without blemish, no spot. They could not accuse him accurately of any crime. They couldn't find two witnesses to agree on any story they could make up with, they could come up with. And yet, they accused and convicted and sentenced and executed an innocent man. The perfect lamb who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we could become his righteousness. The perfect lamb is what the bread is all about. If you have your bread, go ahead and take it. The bread is a picture of his perfect humanity of his perfect life 
being born of a virgin, he had no sin of Adam, had no sin nature, and lived an absolutely perfect life. While being accused, he did not accuse in return. And so, he told us to remember this, to keep on doing this in remembrance of him. So let us bless the bread, and then we shall partake together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And Father, we thank you that you have told us how then we might be saved. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall be saved. Father, you have taught us to look inside at ourselves. And to see whether or not we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling. You have told us that of first importance we must believe that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That he literally rose because he appeared to others during that 40 day time span. And Father, you told us to, as he did, to keep on doing this in remembrance of him. So, Father, we come to you and we thank you for the amazing blessing of your Son. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. Father, we thank you that through this small, small ritual, we can again celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we realize that it is the single most important event in all of history. Father, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And he took the bread and said, This is my body that is broken for you. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. He also took the cup where the bread is a picture of his perfect person. The cup is a picture of his perfect work. He did... What only he could do. We've just been back through the trail by his countrymen, the trail by his friends. His family, even for the most part, had betrayed him. He underwent pain and pressure unlike anything we could ever understand. And yet he stayed true to the mission to which he was called. He stayed true to the to his own personal destiny that he might indeed be the light of the world. He did what only he could do and endured the cross, despising the shame and now seated at your right hand. So Father, help us to remember the cup because this is a cup that only he could drink. It is a cup that is a cup of judgment and a cup of blessing at the same time. He took our judgment that we might be blessed. So, Father, help us always to remember and appreciate what our Lord did in our place on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. In the same way, He took the cup. He said, This is the new covenant in my blood, and as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back. Let us drink.
Father, we cannot thank you enough. We cannot thank you enough for your amazing plan, for deciding to include us within it, for the amazing gift of salvation that is by grace alone in faith of faith alone faith alone in grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we will come to appreciate it all the more. I pray that we will appreciate it more as each and every day goes by. I pray that we will be your servants and worthy of the calling to which you have called us. For we pray and ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. And they sang a hymn. So we'll try it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace than when we first begun. And all of God's people said, Amen.